coming to you from the Hollywood Hills in Los Angeles, California. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down today with Jeff Nicholson, author of books both fictional and non-fictional. The non-fiction books, you'll probably have seen The Lost Art of Walking if you're at all a walker, especially if you're a walker in Los Angeles. There is another newer book available, Walking in Ruins, that deals with the ruins of Hollywood, but you can't get it in the States yet. I'm sure the internet savvy among you can find a way to acquire that one. Of his fictional books, he's written books like Bleeding London, The Hollywood Dodo, Gravity's Volkswagen, most recently, the brand new novel, The City Under the Skin. The city in your latest novel is referred to as exactly that. It's always the city, never a named city, whether real or imagined. But I start. I started reading the book, and I saw a street interse- intersection that could have been downtown Los Angeles. But then I noticed there was oh, a, there's a big construction project in the book that could be in Washington D.C. And then I noticed a Detroitian sense of sense of abandonment to it. How many cities informed this city that is the city in the new book? Well, I think in some ways um, the reader brings their own experience of cities to the book. Um, I, yeah, I have my certain set of cities that I know reasonably well. Um, London, probably the one I know best still, despite having been here in LA for 10 years. Um, I guess I didn't want to make it too specifically LA because it seems to me that LA, although it has many of the features of every city, there's so much about it that's so odd, that's so <laughs> singular. Um, that L.A. can't really stand in for, for any other city. Not that it stops the Hollywood from trying to do that a yeah, hundred times a year. Well, I mean, the, the, they do it the other way, don't they? That, they, um, that they'll film in Toronto, and that will be New York, or they'll, they'll, they'll film in uh, Vancouver, and, and, and that, will be, uh, that will be L.A. Um, and then, of course, there's all this stealth filmmaking that's going on around L.A. people you know, just setting up there the cameras in the corner of the the Ralph's parking lot. Um, it was a book that seemed to drive editors mad, at least in its first incarnation, um, because some people looked at it and wanted me to make it far more specific. Um, these, were, these were, I think, without exception, um, American editors mm-hmm. who read it and said, well, it's clearly a, a European city. Hmm. Um, that hadn't occurred to me. It hadn't really occurred to me either. And they were saying, but you should make it, you know, make it London, make it a kind of a treasure, a treasure chase, a treasure hunt in London. And uh, I kind of felt I'd rather done my London book. Not that you can't do any number of London books, but my previous book, Bleeding London, um, that seemed to, which I think in some ways is a bit of a companion piece to The City Under the Skin. That sort of, it hadn't exhausted everything I had to say, but I felt I'd sort of done that slightly, sort of chasing down the city, hunting through the city. Um, and I didn't want to make it a kind of nebulous, any kind of city. I, I wanted there to be specifics. I wanted there to, you know, it, it has a subway system of a, of a rather specific sort, which I, which I felt is quite LA-ish, that idea of it's the, uh, the subway system that is kind of not really wanted and people have ambivalent feelings about it and it's not used terribly well. Whereas in London, um, Paris, 
um, San Francisco, people love the subway system and use it in a in a real day to day way. Um, so I was very keen that it wasn't just a catch all fantasy, mm. that it wasn't that it was a that it was a somewhere, that it wasn't a nowhere. Um, and the people who've read it, the, I guess they've put it between the coasts, um, <laughs> and uh, have said that it's um, it resembles places that, by and large, I've never been, like Baltimore, where where I've certainly never been, um, and I haven't been to Detroit, which you mentioned. Although I think we all kind of feel we know Detroit from you know from its good and bad press. Um, so I was I, mean, I was delighted. I mean, I finally found the editor there at. Um, at FSG, who did get it, who said it was it was clearly an American city um, and that it was a real place, not a non-place. And that, you know, as she told me, and I don't think it was simply flattering, I mean, I, th I thought that this was quite a, an unusual thing for people to do. Um, but in fact, she says, you know, dozens of books come in over the transom which are set in a kind of mythical or, or <laughs> fantasy city. Uh, and she said, you know, most of them don't work. And, you know, whether, whether I got it to work or not, at least, at least my editor thought I got it to work. Um, and I didn't want it to be an invisible city. I didn't want it to be quite a Calvino. Um, there were times when I thought there was a little bit of Alan Moore and his, um, his, um, his cities are always real. It's, I mean, often it's London, but it certainly isn't always London. Um, and I guess Sin City, I mean, they're all, they're, yeah, they're, there's no shortage of mythical cities. And many of them do seem to be in kind of fantasies or uh, comic books. I mean, Gotham City and Metropolis, um, which I think are probably both stand-ins for New York, in <laughs> fact, are they not? Um, so I wanted it to be, I wanted it to, yeah, without sort of laboring it too much, I wanted it to be real, but I didn't want it to be too specific. At the center of the city under the skin, we have this hotel, the Telstar Hotel, which is, it's the type of building we'll know from various cities, especially American cities, this 60s space-age building that's essentially abandoned, in the case of the novel, literally abandoned, now a squat, but never really found a good use. I'm reminded of a bit of the theme building at LAX, right? Um, yeah. The, the, um, we, the, the important thing to, to remember is that there is a revolving restaurant in the... Yes. In, in the uh, yes, that one actually revolves, so I guess this, this could be the Bonaventure if it was abandoned one day. That's right. Um, I mean, I, th I think... We're all fascinated by, as it were, the future of the past or the past of the future. Um, I mean, that nothing seems so square as old-fashioned visions of the future. Um, I'm just, well, I mean, I'm certainly old enough to remember in London there used to be what was at the time the post office tower, and it had a revolving restaurant, and this was regarded as the, the, the very fanciest thing. Was that a new technology at the time? Why did we love those so much in that era that we built so many in the 60s and 70s? I can't give you a chapter. I can't give you a chapter on verse on, on when. But, the, yeah, they're certainly, in my mind, and I suspect everyone else's, they are associated with the 60s, aren't they, mm -hmm. with a kind of optimism. And, of course, they're always up in the sky. Yes. And that seems to somehow tie in with leaving the Earth and, and you know, looking towards space. Mm -hmm. Um and a lot of them are actually very similar. The, the technology, it, it's a revolving disk. 
uh, with a very, very low-powered engine. Mm -hmm. So that it's quite easy to get them to revolve. Um, but it is one of those sort of, oh, not an obsession, but one of those small interests of mine, which I've never, never completely pursued. And every now and again, I think, oh yeah, there must be, a, there must be a, a book in the history of the revolving restaurant. But it, it's also a, a kind of an optimism, right? That we can do anything. We can, we can take very sophisticated technology, but use it in a rather frivolous end. Right. Um, and that seems to be all part of the sixties anyway. Um, the one I'm thinking of in, in London is, um, it was the post office tower. It's now British Telecom. And it was a site of, um, a, a terror, a terrorist bomb was planted there in the eighties by the IRA. Um, and it has never revolved since. And, and I think it still exists. And I th think that the staff are from British Telecom go in there and use it as a canteen, <laughs> but, uh, but it doesn't revolve. And I guess that's sort of, you know, that's sort of a touchstone of, you know, it's not when the 60s ended, but mm. that kind of optimism of of availability and we will all share in the technology. Mm. Um, you know, it ended when you could plant a, a terrorist bomb there. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, within the book, it is that sort of failure of optimism that um, we thought technology would solve everything that we could build our way out of any problem. Um, and I guess we also thought, I mean, either we thought that things would last, or maybe it didn't matter whether things would last, <laughs> that, you, that you, could, you, know, you, could, you could make a silly building with, with a revolving tower, and um, you know, it would work or it wouldn't. Um, but the, the, the Telstar Hotel that's there in the novel um, has this kind of slow fading away, and it's this focus for various um, plans of, of restoration and revitalizing the city, uh, which you know, which I think we're all fairly common with, and sort of a notion of heritage, and that you know we want to hold on to the past and reclaim the past and make it new, um, and at the same time, there are always interests within a city that just want to raise it and start again from scratch mm -hmm. and that these you know these competing forces of of the city being built and rebuilt and being destroyed are kind of constantly happening and i guess they tend to happen most when there's a, a certain kind of well, prosperity for want of a better word i mean that um when i first came to hollywood in the late 70s you know it was it was failing, and it was failing rapidly. And the idea that anyone would open a restaurant or build an apartment block there was you know, literally inconceivable. Um, and certainly nobody conceived of it. And um, now, of course, you know the, the trendiest bars would be found there on on the what were formerly the grimmest bits of, of Hollywood Boulevard. And you know, people want to live in fancy apartment blocks on the corner of Hollywood and Vine. And I guess we feel this is a good thing. At the same time, you know, I do have a certain affection for a certain amount of grime and patina yes. and, and indeed ruin. Um, but you don't want the whole city to fall into ruin completely. Right. That, that whole most ruined age of Hollywood in the 70s, it's funny because I think, okay, that was going on in Hollywood. It was falling to pieces, hookers everywhere, nothing really working as it should. But then a few miles over downtown, that's that's the moment when the Bonaventure and its revolving restaurant was opening. What's 
What was going on there? <laughs> Uh, ooh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Is there just a huge disconnect between well, different parts of Los Angeles? That seems like it's it's uh, a characteristic of the city you can never ignore. Well, I think that's true. I mean, that, that there is the disconnect because you know where we are now. This is always you know we're, we're two miles at most from Hollywood Boulevard, um, and yeah, the Hollywood Hills are only two miles from Hollywood Boulevard. And however grim things were getting down there. Yeah, there were people who were still sitting by their swimming pools in the Hollywood Hills. Right. Um, Only two miles is another characteristic Los Angeles Los Angeles expression. I think that's not a short distance. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I mean that you know one of the things that people talk about with London uh, is that that it's um, it's a series of villages, mm-hmm. and I know that people talk about. Uh, about L.A. as being a decentered kind of town, mm-hmm. but it always seems to me that. Well, I mean, London, New York are, the, are very decentered places. Um, you know, people who are, go to Brick Lane don't go to Notting Hill. Um, people who go to Highgate don't go to South London. And, you know, nobody but tourists goes to Trafalgar Square. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I didn't even make it over there when I was in London recently. <laughs> um, no, I mean, who does? <laughs> nobody does. Um, and, you know, people, I do see these I think I'm, I'm, I've talked about this quite a lot, but I see these poor tourists wandering along Hollywood Boulevard, which now is, you know, a pleasant enough place to walk. And they've come, and they're not quite sure why. And they're looking down at the sidewalk and seeing the Walk of Fame. And they're kind of gazing around, saying, yeah, this is the attraction, this is the tourist attraction. And, you know, I don't know whether they end up in Ripley's Believe It or Not or, or the Guinness Book of Records. Someone's going in those places. Yeah. Well, quiet. Yeah. Um, I think they find themselves there and say, well, you know, I'm here, I, I have to do something. Um, but I did um, I did see some list of um, the most disappointing tourist sites in the world. Mm. And certainly the Hollywood Walk of Fame is up there, which mm. I understand. Um, but also... Um, Stonehenge is on that list, and I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's fair. It factors into your book, Walking in Ruins, though, because, of course, what can be more logical a ruin to walk in than Stonehenge? What's, what's a more walked-in ruin than Stonehenge, if you think about it? Well, so it's, uh, I mean, at this point in history, it's a walk-around. Yeah, it's walk-around ruin. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I just think there is something about Stonehenge that you know, really does do the business of looking ancient and spiritual, for want of a better Word. I didn't realize there was an underground train that goes up to it. Is that was that how it happens in Stonehenge? I, I think I learned this from your book. You have to take some sort of train to it, or no, no, not, not a train. Mm. I, th- I think that may be a ah. That's probably an Eng- Anglo-American problem. Mm. It's a subway, but it's a walking subway. Ah, I see. Um, that, it did seem really incongruous to me when I think they built a train up to Stonehenge. Oh God, yes, no, they divided by a common language. <laughs> No, what's the, this what, is why walking in ruins isn't going to make it in the U.S. with these problems. Well, what's, the, what's, the, what's the English? What's the American tunnel. English? Yeah, it's a tunnel. It's just a tunnel. Yeah. But yes, you're, you're across the street, across the road. I pictured some tram. Oh, well, that's, that's very nice. Maybe should should be, build that. It should be a monorail, shouldn't it? <laughs> well, that's another thing. That, that's another yeah. version of the future that we've lost, isn't it? The, the monorail and yeah. the revolving restaurant. That was all... Mm. That was all terribly exciting. And, of course, Seattle still has its monorail, does it not? It goes that mile, and it does it well. Yes. Mm. It's something that Ray Bradbury always agitated for. Uh, Of course, he was a famous non-driving Angelino, in addition to being a a famous sci-fi visionary. He would do many a speech around Los Angeles, arguing for the monorail as the future. And it seems... 
I don't know why we consider monorails the stuff of science fiction in, in the same way we class them with revolving restaurants, but we just, we just kind of do, don't we? We do, and they tend to be in rather playful places. They tend to be in Disneyland. Um, they seem to be recreational. Um, and I agree with you. I don't know why. Um, it just happens. It's, they tend to be in close proximity to revolving restaurants, of course, in Seattle, the Space Needle, and thereabouts. But I'm, I'm sure Disneyland has something revolving, uh, the, the, the monorails near. But I wonder this this sense of ru- the sense of ruin, the sense of oh, the the space between the old vision of the urban future and the new vision taking shape. This is the space that one of your main characters in the city under the skin occupies in his role in his hobby as an urban explorer he's 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 an explorer of urban ruins or something to that effect i forget what exact term he uses but when did you become aware this was a a a, not widely but this was a sort of pursued hobby by thousands of people um well i've always known that i did it although i didn't put a name to it until comparatively recently i mean given that um uh, I do so much walking. I didn't really, I didn't want to make my character just another walker. That seemed like that was just sort of too, too Nicholsonian, if you <laughs> wanted a better word. So I wanted him to, to be an explorer, but not, not simply a, a pedestrian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I mean, I think that a lot of us pre internet, certainly, um, Many of us pursued our interests such as they were, and apart from the sort of the obvious ones like you know stamp collecting or, sure. or, or, or you know, um, antique cars, <laughs> model planes, well, that there wasn't really a, a you know you weren't, you didn't have any great sense of a, of a community, right. and certainly as far as exploring odd bits of the city, it's definitely a thing you want to do with one or you know on your own or with one or two other people. You know you don't want to be in a group of. 20, um, and that being in a group changes the experience kind of dramatically, that it's about being on your own and making the discoveries for yourself. Um, And that's kind of the the, the character we have there. Um, And I suppose he's, you know, to that limited extent, he resembles me. Um, And, of course, he then finds his... He finds the woman who is exploring the city for reasons of her own Mm -hmm. and that they have a kind of... um, well, the, the, the Venn diagrams overlap, and we eventually discover why they overlap, mm-hmm. though they're by, they're, they're by no means identical. And I, I guess that's um, that's what many of us do, isn't it? We we have friends who share some of our interests, and we you know we can meet them on a certain amount of common ground. But in the end, you know, we want to explore in a different way, or we have different feelings about about cities and places and exploration than, than our companions do. One of the most interesting uh, sections of Walking in Ruins for an Angelina was, of course, going to be your chapter about walking through ruins in Hollywood. It's, it very much put me in the mind of this character of the uh, city under the skin. It's, it's no longer really thought of as a ruined place, though, Hollywood, is it? I mean, it's, you can find ruins, but you do have to look these days. You can't necessarily stumble into a ruin unless you're in Griffith Park and you come across that zoo, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that's that's part of the success and the prosperity of what's happening in, uh, in Hollywood. And, you know, from what I'm, you know, from my, you know, I, I don't wish to make grand pronouncements, but clearly 
Hollywood is a very prosperous place right now. I mean, much of it is speculative. And whether five years down the road, it's all going to look like some idiotic bubble. Why did they build that, you know, that ridiculous apartment block on that grim corner and on Sunset and Gower or where, wherever they're building? I figured you had a specific corner in mind. Uh, I, I do, but that's not the, <laughs> that's not the one. Um, and, you know, I see the same in, well, Manhattan. You know, there's, there is no part of Manhattan so grim that someone, you know, isn't trying to sell a luxury apartment there. And indeed London now. And London um, just seems to be, you know, exploding with wealth and development and, um, I mean, I guess optimism as well. Um, and the buildings look kind of shiny and, and playful to an extent, you know, with a lot of balconies, a lot of glass, um, a lot of colored facings, that they're these are buildings where people can have fun, you know, that, that, that your life will not be grim. Um, and Sheffield, my hometown, you know, that, that has, um, they just sell, sold their first million pound apartment in Sheffield. Uh, you know, my, my mother who died not that long ago, you know, that would have, you know, you could have hit her over the head with a brick before yes. she'd believe that you could sell a, a million, a million pound apartment in, uh, in Sheffield. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the, there is a certain, I guess it may be an architectural similarity um, or a kind of cultural aspirational similarity that people in Sheffield and Manhattan and uh, San Diego, where I was at the weekend, um, have a, an aspiration, or at least developers believe they have an aspiration to live in a kind of modern 2000s, you know, sit on the balcony, listen to your iPod and be part of a generated mm-hmm. generated world do cities develop in any way other than through bubbles it seems like at least the for certainly in my lifetime and most of the past century that i can think of don't, bubbles only ever it's it's cities sort of seem to get abandoned bubble back up get abandoned bubble back up it seems like there's no other way uh for a city to build up any more than than a bubble yeah i mean this is this is not my area of expertise, but development um, when or planning let 's call it planning um, when they were trying to revitalize the docks in London in the 1980s um, it pretty much turned into a, a free for all and in, in the, the planning regulations were relaxed to you know a, a ridiculous degree, and it did seem to work. Um, these completely um, neglected and despised areas down by the Docklands. If they had been, you know, if local government or central government had put together a plan for how to revitalize the, the London Docklands, it would have, you know, it would have been a grim failure. <laughs> um, well, this is, this is an argument. Um, and the fact that you, you let the market forces. I mean, we, we believed a lot. I think we believe a lot more in the market now than today. Although I'm it goes sure, back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who are immensely pro-market. Um, but of course, I mean, I, I haven't absolutely kept my eye on this. But there's now—is it a, a two billion dollar or hundred billion dollar plan to revitalize the LA River? Mm, it sounds like something that is where the gears are turning, yeah. if slowly. It does seem that when developers think they can make a ton of money out of selling out of developing ruined areas then things start to happen 
where, and, and I think you're probably right that the idea of slow, steady progress is not. Or the done thing. Well, I'm thinking about the World Cup in Brazil, um, which we're told is, you know, a disaster that, you know, nothing's finished, nothing's built. Um, you know, millions, if not billions of dollars have gone into that and nobody seems to know exactly where they've gone. And there is some notion that at the end they'll be left with a, a bunch of ruined shells. But of course, this was, um, again talked about in London that, um, we built, they built the Millennium Dome, which everyone said was going to be the most terrible white elephant. And now, you know, it's an extraordinarily successful music venue. Um, and they, the people who own it are making a ton of money. Um, the Olympic Stadium there in, uh, in London, which people said would be loathed and despised. Uh, and I think we've both discovered people seem to quite, seem to be rather fond of it. Uh, yes, it's, I, I focus on this because it's so at the core of the city under the skin, this idea of the struggle for the future form, the future image of a city. There's always going to be, there's always going to be somebody arguing for everything, it seems like, and that's an idea incorporated into the novel, is that someone's always going to be at odds with somebody else where the form of a city is concerned. Is, is that an idea you subscribe to? Yeah, very much so. I, I, don't, I think that's <laughs> rather more, more articulately than it, may, than it may be in the book. Um, but yeah, that... I mean, maybe it's just life, but certainly cities that there are a bunch of competing interests and the interests will never be identical or, um, or even symbiotic. So there will always be winners and losers. Um, I think probably we should also say that one of the things that is both a, a plot feature of the book, but also a kind of, um, metaphor for the book is, is, the, is mapping yes, indeed. and that maps are always made in, in somebody's interests. The idea of, a, of an entirely neutral map um, is just not possible. Um, and you, I mean, you see that when you, um, you know, if you go on Google Maps, there'll be certain cafes and buildings that are, that are marked and certain ones that aren't. Probably uh, not accidental. Not accidental. None, none of it's ever, ever accidental. And um, the idea that you can just map a place or look at a place and see it in a in a neutral way, mm. I mean, on, in a sort of um, you know, at a low level, if you're interested in mid-century architecture, you see the mid-century architecture. Right. You know, if you're interested in freeway design, you'll see where the freeways go and, and how that works. Um, you know, if you're interested in green spaces, open spaces, you'll look at the map and observe that there is or isn't green right. space. This is the same map. You're just seeing different things on it. Exactly. This reminds me of actually, I've been fantasizing about doing this for the past few months. I don't know how I would even accomplish it, but just to carry around a stack of sheets of paper and to everybody I meet, hand them one and say, draw me a map of Los Angeles because no two are going to look remotely the same if you do that, right? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't. If you'd asked me to, you'd have asked me to do that yes. before. Um, no, exactly. Um, the, the, what do you draw first? If I was to say, draw a map of Los Angeles, what, what goes down first? And what, what do you think, what lines do you draw outward from there? Well, this seems, I mean, I do believe for a start that everybody has their own mental map of, 
of everywhere, yeah. and that and that's fine. You know, we, we we each of us carries around a map of L.A. that or, or any city where we live, and you know they they never quite combine. And and obviously you, you tend to where you happen to be tends to be at the center. Um, I mean, so for me, Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood Boulevard, Franklin, those are the those are my three streets. Um, the thing that looms largest in my life is the 405. Uh, you know, the, I mean, you know, the, the cliche of all cliches that, um, you know, if, if, if once I start getting within a couple of miles of the 405, I start getting the, the heebie jeebies. <laughs> so, uh, so on my map. It's our very own Berlin Wall in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, on my map of, uh, of LA, it is. It's this big sort of gouge in the earth. So, you know, here be dragons. Mar incognita. Yeah, exactly so. Um, and Hollywood's what I know best, but I, I kind of know Silver Lake and downtown. But I'm not, you know, I'm pretty vague about the gaps between these places. Mm. Um, it would be a very poor map. <laughs> and <laughs> they would the, all be poor uh, maps. I'd just be handing them a sheet of paper. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating idea. Mm. and um, It's one that would appeal to the main character of your book, no doubt. He's, he's working in a map shop none too lucratively, considers himself a map nerd. He's very much into this idea of the, the images of a city we have in our head. And it's 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 a type of... Is, is map nerdism in the ascendant, even if maps themselves are changing uh, in form and in, in usage? Well, I mean, this this may be part of the, the same business of, of the um, you know the history of the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there are certain um, technologies that seem to disappear and then and then come back. I mean, vinyl is seems to be the number one. You know, it was the most. Well, it was the only format. Then it became the despised format. Now it's the, now it's the loved format. Um, and there are certain formats you think are gone forever. You just can't. You can't really imagine that the um, the eight track cartridge is going is going to make yes. a comeback. But some some guy out People there people like to rewind. They they're never going to play those. <laughs> no, I mean some guy out there is probably thinks it's the best thing in the world. And <laughs> and, and Lord knows he can probably get a he can probably put a collection together without spending much money. He's got the quadraphonic sound system. Oh yes, um, and the map. I mean, I, I I've always. I mean, I've. I am not my characters, um, and I, but I generally share enough DNA or markers with them. Um, I've always liked maps. Um, you know, when I used to go on vacation with my parents, the place would only seem kind of real if I could buy a map and say, oh, there's, yeah, there's something down the road there. Let's, mm-hmm. let's go and see that. Um, and it didn't seem particularly eccentric, but I'm aware that this is not, Strictly what every, you know, 11-year-old boy does. And, um, you know, I pick, I, I, I certainly don't collect maps, but I've got a big box downstairs of maps that I've, you know, picked up on vacation, on my travels, some of which are actually kind of useful, some of which are decorative, uh, you know, that, that work as, mm. as tourist objects. Um, and some of them, I say, some of them are good for getting you from A to B, and some of them, you know, are only good for getting you from the Ferris wheel to the uh, to the roller coaster. They'll take you where they want to show you. Exactly so, yes. as as maps as maps are want to do. Um, 
I'm still because I lead such a sedentary life, um, you know, and I, I can easily turn into a hermit. Um, I never really embrace the smartphone because, you know, I, I just if if I've got something serious to look up, I'll look it up in my in my real computer. Um, so when I'm out and about. You know, I have the most basic of all possible um, cell phones, and you know, I use it to make phone calls and occasionally a text. Um, with with a proviso, therefore, that if I'm going somewhere I don't know, I'll sit down at my computer, make a map, print it off, yeah. and put that in the car with me, which is probably the worst of all possible worlds. <laughs> I mean, and and very very old school, or you know, ancient old school. Um, <laughs> But the the idea that I mean the character Zach in the book, um, he's very much aware that he's he's dealing with a an, a dated commodity, um, and there is that sense. Maybe it's part of the appeal. It's part of the appeal for him, and that's why there's a market for. That's why he, he sells to people who are interested, um, and he is aware that. There are times when it may just be easier to look on your smartphone and and find the little pulse and that's and that's where you are but if you need a map where a serial killer put down x's where he did all his murders zach's your man absolutely um hand-drawn maps as we've been saying um are obviously the most personal um and that but you can even personalize um you know a, a, a map of a city i Again, when I used to live in London, uh, I lived everywhere. You know, I seemed to move every two or three months. And I once sat down with a big map and put a little cross at all the places where I where I had lived. Mm-hmm. And it was the most sort of eccentric. I mean, I, 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 I tried to look at it and think, is there some sort of logic? Or could mm-hmm. someone look at this and say, oh, yes, he's moving in this direction or that Just direction? Just insanity if they look at it. Well, yeah, it's completely random. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it seems completely random, and it is yeah. to an extent. Um, but, yes, if you showed it to someone and said, you know, this is where these these X's mark places where terrible, terrible things happen, <laughs> and given some of my apartments... Terrible things, <laughs> did, terrible things did happen, um, but yes, I mean, if if I could, I could draw that map by hand, and it would be, you know, profoundly mine. Um, but even if I draw it on a pre-existing map, it's still, I still make it mine, and, and it has symbols and markings that I understand that other people don't, and that's that's essentially what all all maps are about. I mentioned this murder map, which is an element of the city under the skin, and. I'll emphasize to the listener: this isn't just a novel of city planning and uh, no. and uh, and ge- geography nerdism and urban exploration. It's also a novel of kidnapping and murder and all manner of intrigue. When did it become that in in the conception or writing process? When did you decide this would be, or did the, did the sort of thrills and the murders come first and the mapping come second? What was the order? It's hard to say. Um, I mean, one of the things that did. Uh, I did realize that I guess probably my, my greatest hit as as a novelist was a book called um, was Bleeding London, which we've mentioned. And that's sort of a, a book in which I guess the city is a, is a character. Um, and that's kind of, that's the metaphor in the title, that London is a, is a, a being that can, that breathes and, you know, it has a heart and a gut and um and it makes you bleed um so it had all this kind of um for want of a better word literary element to it and it 
It did, but it also has a, a kind of a strong through uh, a revenge plot. You know, some some man is trying to uh, punish people who do something terrible to his girlfriend. Uh, one of the things that you know I eventually learned about that. Um, multiple people have tried to make um, movies of that book, mm-hmm. and what stage does it freeze at? It's, it freezes at the stage where if you just run through the plot, it doesn't. You've got a plot, but right. but so what? Um, and that the thing that people actually like about the book is is the stuff about the city as the, as the living, breathing organism and and how we relate to uh, strange places and how strange places embrace us and we embrace them or they punish us, mm-hmm. um, and that the plot on its own doesn't take you the places you want to go. Um, and it, but it does occur to me, um, or it did, that once you've got a sort of a through plot, or you know, a thriller plot, for want of a better word, you can hang all kinds of eccentricities or weird stuff mm. or, or obsessions on it. That well, robust frame is there, then go wild. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's. That's kind of what's going on in uh, the city under the skin. There's a fairly, it's not so much who done it, but why they did it and what does it mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sh- shall we explain the, <laughs> shall we explain the plot? The spoilers. Yes, yes I mean, I I feel that if if a book is actually spoiled by spoilers, it's not much of a book. And I think the city under the skin is not spoiled by spoilers, thriller though it may be. Yeah. So I mean, basically, um, women start appearing women who've been um, pulled off the street, kidnapped, and maps. It, it takes us a while to, to be certain that they are maps, but maps of something have been tattooed very roughly, very crudely, deliberately crudely, it appears, on their backs, and then they're, they're released. So there are a number, we're not sure how many at first, a number of women who are wandering around with these maps tattooed on their backs and there's a good deal of who did it what does it mean what's it a map of the maps seem to mean nothing to anybody um so our hero zach who is the max the map the map expert is is the go-to guy and he looks at them and he he's trying to impress his his girlfriend so he has all this the, the kind of, he says the kind of things we've been saying, <laughs> that, that maps are always made in somebody's interest, and the interest may not be yours. And it, in this case, it's certainly not in the interest of the poor women who had this, this done to them. And I, I guess one of the things that historically I've always written about, or one of my, my obsessions, is the relationship between people and things. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my characters do tend to be obsessed with objects, you know, whether... You know, guitars or Volkswagen's women's shoes, <laughs> um, and and the map is a particularly interesting one in that it's um, it clearly is an object, and it it can be appreciated as an object, but it always has some relationship to the world out there. Um, it's it has a meaning in in the bigger world, and of course, as far as um, imposing these tattooed maps on the women 
is kind of a way of turning a person into a thing, mm. that the, the woman loses her identity as a, as a human being and becomes a map, becomes part of a scheme, becomes part of a... Uh, of someone else's obsession. And, I mean, I found that a very rich and kind of interesting notion that, um, you know, we think we're... You know, we're, we're these energies and spiritual dimensions, but we are also things. We're flesh and blood, and we have this physical existence, which, you know, we don't and probably shouldn't want to overcome. <laughs> but that, you know, but, and that we are more than just objects. We are more than just maps. And that there's a punishment, there's a kind of desecration of the body um, that, that this tattooing represents. Do you... Do you think of a book like Walking in Ruins, a nonfiction book, a book of essays, as also having a kind of story to it, despite the, that it doesn't need that sort of thriller plot that, that The City Under the Skin does? Is, is, does Walking in Ruins have or need a story? Um, it needs a structure, I guess. Um, I, I find myself often reading um, nonfiction books where there's a slightly bogus quest <laughs> element that, yes. that, that has been added. And One man's year of eating only vegetables, <laughs> you know, we've all seen them. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes that, um, you know, people are searching for a discovery, which if they'd had a lick of sense, they'd have, they'd have discovered on day three of this, <laughs> of the writing process. Um, a pamphlet, then you get not a book. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I I think you need a shape, a shape, a structure, um, and a, a writer's under no obligation to put all his cards on the table, at, um, you know, on day one, on, on, the, on the first chapter. But he's got to be honest with the reader. Um, I don't think you can sort of say, yeah, you can't pretend that you're working towards some great revelation when the, the, the great revelation is there from, from the beginning. Um, <laughs> it's inside you all along, I guess. <laughs> Heaven is always inside you. Yeah. Some of these quests in, in, in Walking in Ruins, they take you to ruins very far away indeed from the big city or this city or, or another. One of them is a ruin that's fascinated me for a long time. I've never been there, though. But thinking of the 1960s being put in the mind, the, the sort of Telstar hotels of the world put me in, in, in the mind of real or imagined. In the 60s, Los Angeles was expanding so rapidly, and there was such a push for sort of vacation communities far flung outside the city. And I was reading recently uh, Christopher Rand's book, uh, Los Angeles, the Ultimate City, from 1967. He talks about uh, Salton City, near the Salton Sea, being pitched as this, this is the next big vacation destination. This is, this is it. This is going to be huge. Uh, you visit, you visit, you visit Salton City, uh, the Salton Sea in Walking in Ruins. It didn't pan out, did it? No. Um, and, you know, <laughs> as we sit here today with uh, the benefit of hindsight, it seems a ludicrous notion <laughs> that it, that it ever would. But whether it's any more ludicrous than Palm Springs. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, I remember the first time I went there. Um, I mean, not quite by chance, but um, I was driving you know, on a road trip and looked on the map, and you know, it's called a city, so you kind of think there's something there. You expect a certain thing when you read city. Well, I, what, the thing we were looking for was breakfast. Yes. You know? and, and from a distance, 
you know, the structures are still there, and there are things that that looks like, you know, in the, two miles away in the distance, that looks like a cafe, that looks like a that looks like a motel, and you you think, well, yeah, yeah, that's that's a place, and when you get there, it's a it's a non-place, I guess. You know, I'm sure Mark Auger would have a, 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 a rather specific notion of what a non-place is. I mean, I love the place, I love the Salton Sea, I love all those uh, surrounding. Communities like Bombay Beach, mm. and uh, what can one do in the, at the Salton Sea? I mean, there's certainly walking around walking it to be done. Is, well, I mean, um, and poking around in, sure. in, in ruins is 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 the other thing. Um, people do fish, but um, I mean, I, I like the desert in in pretty much all its forms, but the the Mojave Desert particularly. Um, the, the, the sort of the oddness, the singularity of this piece of water there, um, which isn't really natural in, in any meaningful sense. I mean, it was created by a flood and it's currently, it remains there because of um, overflow from agriculture. But as um, irrigation methods become more sophisticated and, and as water becomes more valuable there will be less and less runoff so even the ruin will be another more ruined ruin in at some time in the future yeah i mean it's a ruined environment um because it was a it was a, a hollow that was flooded so that, that's a, that's one kind of ruin um the sea um, well, the sea gets ruined every year because um there's there's liquid and salt and at a certain point um, things can live there and as the sun beats down and the water becomes more and more concentrated, more saturated with salt it becomes uninhabitable and then next year there's runoff from the mountains again. So it is yeah, I mean it's ruin and non-ruin in, in fairly constant rotation um, but not permanent um, there are those, there, I mean there are clearly people who still live there, I mean there's a bar I think Anthony Bourdain has, has been has done a program from the bar in, in Bombay Beach um, people clearly do live there and it's a very um, edgy kind of existence and uh, I think you'll know from my book Walking in Ruins I do like edgelands um, although, how far did you have to go for breakfast from that particular Ragland? Yeah, the, a long way. I think we were probably in Arizona before we... we <laughs> I mean, if, I, if there was a gas station, we won't, one, one wouldn't starve. <laughs> but, um, and yes, I mean, the, uh, quite often, edgelands don't have to be on the edge. You know, you just go down, you know, two blocks from the main drag and you're, you're on some kind of, uh, some kind of edge. And I actually, I'm fascinated by those kind of, um, what are they? Alleys or access streets that you you find around L.A. Uh, and even in Beverly Hills, you know. So if you if you go half a block and, and poke around the back of the uh, you know the, the street that gives you access to the uh-huh. to the Jimmy Choo store, <laughs> Sorry. you know, I mean, there's a bits of um, you know ruined. Not do I mean ruined, but but sort of patinered. Um, Masonry and things falling apart that because it's a facade, you know, the thing that faces the street is what people see, and it's only you know, map nerds like me or <laughs> urban explorers who go, you know, who go around and you know, I don't want to give the impression that I, you know, um, you know, I'm some sort of that, that, that my interest is perverse. It's not, it's not like I, 
you know, I don't want to go to the Taj Mahal and go through the uh, through the garbage cans. <laughs> but that idea of you know, here's the facade and what's behind the facade is is all part of the urban exploration uh, project. I think is is it true? I mean, does Los Angeles have more? more of these sort of neglected spaces, spaces that themselves fall through the, the cracks than other cities you've been to? Or is that just an impression we get living here? Again, not, not my area of expertise, but I'm guessing that, as it were, the, um, this is a controversial word, the sprawl of, of L.A. does mean that there can often be quite large gaps between things. Um, I think they're they're filling in fairly rapidly. Right, I was going to ask, you know, with the amount of as they call it infill, but you can see it happening. You can only go so far out. Los Angeles went that far out thirty years ago. Do you fear the loss of the in between spaces? Well, I do. Um, I mean, I found um, there's a wonderful. Uh, it's on it's on Western, and it's just below Sunset, I think. And there's a gas station, or a former gas station, and it's right behind where they're now building um, the brand new Target. Mm-hmm. And Target's going to be this, not very tall, I think it's like five stories, it's not high rise, um, but it's going to be this shiny big building that will blot out the sun in certain, <laughs> in certain angles. And behind it there is this old gas station. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell what's going on there. Sometimes I, I look in and it seems like there may be somebody living there. But, you know, if you own that piece of real estate in, in that bit of L.A., you know, it's valuable in some way. Yes. It's valuable to somebody. And somebody thinks it's, I mean, either they may be holding on to it because they think it'll be worth more. Really? If they, um, but, Some eccentric owner they can't find. These are all plausible in Los Angeles, these stories. They're, they're totally plausible. Um, not very far from here, which is... Um, which seems a pleasant enough area. Um, there used to be a, it was called the Haunted House. Oh, it used to be. Now, this is a house you write about in Walking in Ruins. Is it gone? It's gone. Oh, when did that disappear? How long after the book did the house go away? Uh, almost, it, pretty much on the time that the book was published. <laughs> oh, one day it was there, one day it wasn't, this no, Haunted no. House? It, it's there, and oh. it's been restored. Oh, <laughs> It's not not haunted anymore. No, so I mean, my, my whole fantasy there in the, in the book is that it's this, um, you know, rather, it was this rather rustic house on the top of a hill, mm-hmm. and I always imagined that it would slide down the hill and become yes. a complete ruin. And uh, I was enjoying watching that process. You know, it had wooden uh, balconies that were coming away from the wall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't walk by it that often, but, you know, maybe once a month, maybe every six weeks. And, yeah, one day I'm there, and you know, it's all been spruced up, and it's got new windows, and the, the I think the balconies, the balconies are gone, so there's nothing falling down. It's been painted. Mm, um, gone today, here tomorrow. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> so my whole uh, my whole conceit about this this little <laughs> bit of uh, of Hollywood falling into complete uh, rack and ruin or being replaced, um, yeah, that's that's definitely a make do and mend. <laughs> I think I've, I've had to come into the Hollywood Hills twice in the time I've lived in Los Angeles, both to interview you. So it's not an area that I have a great grasp on, but it's fascinating because you, you mentioned your your love of the desert, which is in one of the lovely places in, in, in California, certainly. And people would say the same about the Hollywood Hills, I think. But in both cases, 
I do, they do raise the question, how did things get to be here? Like it's out in the, whether out in the desert, how did, how did the settlement get to be out there? And indeed up in the hills, you know, coming, you have to go straight up a road for what feels like 10 minutes to get here. It's like, this is interesting. Like how did, how did things, how did things get here? How did it occur to people to put things here? Did, is that a question that's ever been in your mind? Uh, I mean, somewhat. Um, I mean, my, I know a little bit about, well, I mean, I've read a book about, <laughs> about the history of Hollywood land, which is, you know, the, which is why we have the sign. Um, and, and, you know, of course, we've all seen those pictures that it looks like, um, if not quite desert, certainly, you know, scrubby hills. Mm. And then someone decides to build a road and then someone sees that there's a, a real estate opportunity. Mm. There's always been this notion, I think, in L.A. that um, elevation is kind of advantage. Mm. That in living on, if you if you could live on the very top above, uh, it's like how uh, goats instinctively uh, climb upward. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're there, if you've got the big house on top of the hill that overlooks um, the Sunset Strip, you know, you've you've really made it. Right. Um, You're not near the hookers at that point. We still need, near enough. <laughs> Just near enough. <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, we, where, where, where we're sitting now, you actually go up the hill and then you come down again. So we've, we've kind of lost the advantage. But we're looking, as we look out there, there's a, a sort of modern post and beam house oh, yes. um, so where rock and roll bands are put up when they're uh, visiting town. It's owned by uh, a venue? Uh, at, well, uh, one, no, one never knows. True, I mean, true. In this neighborhood, you know, no one, no one. <laughs> I know my neighbors' names, but what they do and how they, how they make their money is... Yes, I'd rather not have that known. I, I think that we'd all rather <laughs> not have that known. Um, and... You know, of course, we're all kind of cheek by jowl here. Right? The houses are quite close, but because of the hill... I don't know if I would call this cheek by jowl. By what standard? Well, okay, but if you look out here, if, this, if we were on the flat, these, right. these people here would be right. extraordinarily close. And you don't share a wall with them right now. We don't share a wall, no. I mean, yeah, these, are, <laughs> these are fatuous notions. <laughs> but I get what you mean. That, that's, this is what I want to know about. It's, when I ask by what standard are you cheek by jowl, it's a real question. It's, there is a standard here in place an idea of living that developed here and i just wonder what you know about it not not much mm-hmm. uh, i mean when when so when i came to la i always imagined i'd, I'd end up in atwater village yeah. atwater village seemed sort of my kind of place mm-hmm. um it's got that little um the Englishman in his castle sort of idea. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's got their little house, their little right. box, and their little patch of land. The English dream is not so different from the American dream in a way. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the American pr- dream came from it, I guess. So. And I think it's much rarer in England, in uh, fact. It was um, the semi-detached house is enormously popular in, in, in England. I mean, I'm almost you, you know, ubiquitous. Um, I mean, my parents lived in a semi, and that was... They had, they had moved up in the world to get to the semi, but they could never quite make that that leap into the d- detached house. That was, hmm. but you know, in in LA, there the, the, there are detached houses in the ghetto. It's not yes, a especially there, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, they good fences make good neighbors <laughs> and all that stuff. Hmm. Um, one thing I do know, which you may not want to put on. Uh, 
to broadcast. You'll be the judge. <laughs> well, on the, uh, the lease here, uh, which doesn't go back very far, not, not the lease, but the, the deeds, um, goes, only goes back to the 30s. I don't know what, um, who owned it before then. Um, it says, no Hindus. <laughs> Hindus are not allowed to live here. Specifically. Specifically Hindus. No. Am I cutting this in or leaving, leaving it, uh, cutting this out or leaving it in? I, it's, it seems like no one's going to, I don't know if any Hindus will be mad at this, but, uh, when did you discover this? Well, you know, just when we, when we bought the house, you know, we, we saw, we saw the deeds. And, you know, in some ways it seems like it's, <laughs> What, yeah, as you say, why the Hindus? It's the strangest group, group to exclude. I mean, is it that they, they simply, you can imagine that they never thought, um, you know, African Americans would ever be able yeah. to live here, or Mexicans. <laughs> um, if any group has a chance, we'll keep, that's the one, we'll yeah. keep them out. Why the Hindus were singled out uh, from uh, all the other ethnic groups which might aspire to live here? Um, I mean, perhaps they just thought that there were some rich Hindus who were planning on moving in. Mm. Oh, so it's a specific people. They might have said, well, we don't want those. We don't want them in there specifically. We know, we know their designs. I imagine, though, you look at the deeds of a lot of houses around you, you see some weird stuff. You just, uh, was, uh, is that the type of document that's on a deed? Uh, the deed says no Hindus? Or what, what is, where, do you find, where do you think you find the strangest stuff in the documentation of homes in Los Angeles, be it no Hindus or anything else? Well, Hancock Park, I believe, used to be a, um, a no, no, no Jews allowed. Mm. Um, and that, that seems to carry on because I, you know, I talk to Jewish people who say, you know, rather be seen dead than, mm. than go into, into Hancock Park. Um, I mean, presumably this, this is now completely illegal. It's not, mm. the law has changed and you can't, uh, you can't discriminate on, on those terms. But I do find it interesting that, yeah, it was the poor old Hindus who were. <laughs> although maybe you know, or maybe it's a compliment, you know, that the. With the new developments we're all seeing in Los Angeles now, you're walking around, you're looking at them go up, whether they're appealing or not. Are you thinking about what they'll look like in their inevitable days as ruins? Oh yeah, of course. I mean that. Um, well, we we come to uh, Albert Speer and Adolf Hitler before very long, don't we? Yes. That um, between them. Um, Speer and, and Hitler came up with the notion that buildings should be built with their eventual ruin in mind, um, taking the sort of the classical example that um, even when the Third Reich had disappeared, however many thousands of years that was in the future, mm-hmm. the buildings or the ruins of the buildings would remain and people would say, what a fine, great civilization it must have been if these are if these are the ruins left behind, mm-hmm. and you know that certainly does apply to the ancient world, the classical world. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, that, that people are going to look at um, the Kodak Theater. In, mm-hmm. I mean, as as we now conceive of L.A very little is being allowed to fall into ruin, that mm. if the Kodak Theatre was regarded as untenable, it would be demolished and replaced. Um, you do need something, you know, out there on, on the edge. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff online about uh, malls, ruined malls. Because, some, yeah, some are now in a ruined state, essentially. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I could certainly 
there used to be one in Barstow that I used to wander around and, and look at. And they have a sort of ghostly quality because they're so nondescript to start with. It is, it is a, it is a large box. Um, and the signs remain, the big tall signs that, you know, would have the, uh, the name of the mall and the names of the companies inside. And the, the names are the first thing to fall off. Right. They either get covered up or they, they, they fall off or somebody steals them. Mm. Um, and they have this sort of sense of, you know, what would a future generation make of this? You know, is it a temple? Is it a, you know, a housing development? The aspirations of the mall are almost still visible, but they're very modest aspirations. So it's, it's, it's unusual to see something, something modest in ruins. Do you know what I mean? Well, of course, in the desert, we, uh, there were the, um, I love looking at these strange little cabins <laughs> that, um, which can never have been very substantial to start with. Um, and, you know, when I poke around in them, I do see, you know, you see the remains of a life that, and in many cases, it seems like people have just said, I've had enough of this and, and walked out the door. Yes. Left it where it stood. Yeah, left where it stood. And, you know, there's always a pair of shoes left behind and there'll, there'll be some children's toys and, you know, a, a motor manual. Um, and I think that's one of the things we always do when we look at ruins, isn't it? We try to imagine what, what the life was that was there and, and how people lived and what they did and, and what the structures meant to them. Um, this is really the novelist's mind. Is it not at work? I think it is. But, I mean, I don't think it's only a novelist. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, that's why people are fascinated by Pompeii and the ruins of Pompeii, because you've got that snapshot of exactly how, you know, that people were there at that very moment. Uh, graffiti and all. Mm, indeed. Mm. I don't know. I think the, I think the Bonaventure is going to make a cool ruin. What do you think? Oh, it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, the question is, what's going to happen to the glass? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Is the glass going to stay there or is the glass going to fall off? And which is more interesting? Um, well, it would be, be, at the moment, the glass is so much a part of the structure. I mean, those columns or whatever you want to call them. Um, once the glass was gone, it would become a, this curious kind of cylindrical skeleton or four cylindrical right. skeletons. Um, Do you envision squatters taking up in the revolving restaurant? Well, I, I'd be one of the first ones there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, fortunately... Um, a heroine there in, in the city under the skin. She lives, she's got a certain status around the place, so she lives alone in the revolving restaurant. You certainly wouldn't want to have um, a, a communal squat in, the, in a revolving restaurant. That would seem to be asking for too much, asking for trouble. But that always seems to be in the nature of squatting anyway. There's always a good deal too much communality and discussion of communality. You can find out more about what status this character has at the Telstar Hotel by reading The City Under the Skin, the new novel by Jeff Nicholson, who's been my guest today. Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you so much. The Notebook on Cities and Culture, I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the cultural creators, internationalists, and observers of the urban scene on the show at colinmarshall.org. Thanks. <laughs>